Uh, This morning is the first Sunday of Advent, as we uh, have recognized already, the four weeks in the church calendar leading up to Christmas. Uh, But this is also our last Sunday together in the Gospel of Mark. We've been studying through Mark uh, together since March now, uh, but this morning we finally come to the end. Uh, This message is part two of our examination of uh, Mark chapter 13 specifically, which, although it is not the end of Mark's gospel, uh, but because we cover chapters 14 through 16 during Lent back in the spring, uh, we will conclude our study here with chapter 13 this morning, which seems like a fitting ending to me. We end with the end times. Jesus prophecies here his second coming at the end of history. And It's also fitting uh, not only uh, as an end to our study of Mark, but actually as a beginning to our celebration of Advent as well. The Latin word uh, Adventus means coming, and traditionally the church has observed Advent um, as a season of hopeful, expectant waiting for the coming of the Lord, both at Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago, as well as in his return in the last days. And so let's start with a quick recap of last week for those of you who who may have missed last Sunday. Mark 13 is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse, uh, so titled because this exchange between Jesus and his disciples takes place, we hear uh, in verse 3, on the Mount of Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem on Wednesday of Holy Week, just two days before Jesus' death. And so I pointed out last week that any passage of scripture or uh, theological doctrine can basically be categorized into one of four tiers of what we might call centrality biblically. There are core doctrines and passages uh, that that we believers hold with a really closed hand. Uh, Core doctrines like the gospel, the good news about Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us to rescue broken sinners like you and me and reconcile us to a perfect holy God. And then there are passages of clear importance uh, and clear interpretation on which Orthodox Christians uh, will agree. Then there are contested passages on which we'll disagree, but not because they're unimportant, simply because the Bible is less than perfectly clear. There are some things the Lord did not ordain that we would know with absolute certainty until uh, the other side of eternity. And finally, the inconsequential, the not super important details. In this passage, Mark 13, and this topic, eschatology, the study of the end times, fits squarely within the contested circle there. I had a lengthier conversation this past week with one of you um, who self-identifies as a partial preterist. Partial preterists believe that most of Mark 13 here and most of the book of Revelation uh, refers to God's judgment of the nation of Israel within one literal generation of Jesus's lifetime, and thus that the prophecies uh, that we're going to continue studying this morning have already been fulfilled in the destruction of the Jewish temple in the year 70 A.D., Now, in contrast, I believe, for reasons I outlined last week, and we'll get into a little bit again this morning, that only verses 1 and 2 of Mark 13 foretell the destruction of the temple, and that the rest of verses 3 through 37 here prophecy a coming, uh, still-to-come time of great tribulation, followed by Christ's glorious return, all preceded by the rapture of God's elect into heaven. So we agree to disagree. Um, I'm so thankful for West Hills, for a church uh, that majors on the majors and minors on the minors, a place where dispensationalists and partial preterists can worship side by side, where 
Those of you with the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues can worship besides cessationists who think you're crazy. Um, And we still love and respect one another enough and we can worship with one another. We're mature Christians who've walked with the Lord for longer than I've been alive can worship alongside uh, as of yet unbelievers who are still just dipping their toe in the water, checking out church for the first time. West Hills is truly a place uh, that welcomes all people. We love you enough to welcome you no matter where you're at in your walk with Christ, and we love you enough not to let you stay there. We want to push you, to challenge you, to grow you in your pursuit of the Lord, and that means not just wading in the shallow waters, but venturing together into the deep end, passages like this one, Mark 13. And so last week we covered verses 1 and 2, the end of the Jewish temple, where we spent most of our time was in uh, verses 3 through 13, where Jesus prophecies uh, the end of the present age. The Gospel of Matthew records the full question to which Jesus is responding in this sermon, this discourse, from his disciples. They ask, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. They want to know when Jesus is going to return, this time not as a suffering servant on a cross, but this time as a conquering king on a white stallion. And in verses 3 through 13, Jesus highlights for them some of the signs of the ends of the age. Verses 5 through 6, we saw false teachers, false messiahs. Verses 7 and 8, an increase in war. Uh, Verses 9 through 13, an escalation of persecution. True followers of Christ will be hated by all for Jesus' name's sake, he tells us. All of this, he warns us in verse 8, is but the beginning of the birth pains. Things are going to get way worse before they get way better. But take heart, he comforts us. In verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so let's pick up right where we left off in verse 14 of Mark chapter 13. Read all the way through the end. Uh, Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word. It's a longer passage, so you get plenty of chance to stretch out your legs here, but it's it's so important. I'll read it for us from the ESV. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen in front. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants on those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days... No human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark about how these things will take place, about what the future holds, both for, for those of us who know you, who love you, are called according to your purpose, and for those who don't. Um, God, that even if we don't know when this will happen or exactly how it will happen, we do know what will happen. We know the end. The end has been written. Father, we thank you for good news, for good news of glad tidings, of great joy, not just at your coming 2,000 years ago that we celebrate this Advent season, but at your future coming that we still look forward to. And so, Father, this morning we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to see our hearts uh, and ears to, to hear and perceive your word, that your spirit might illuminate our study of the scriptures now, um, just as you inspired their writing so many years ago. God, would you use it for our edification, for the building up of your people, and for your glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, verses 14 through 23 here that we begin with describe the end of the tribulation. We begin in verse 14. We hear, when you see the abomination of desolation, Standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, this phrase, abomination of desolation, comes straight from the 6th century B.C. Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 31, where Daniel prophesied uh, the desecration of the temple by the Seleucid ruler Antiochus IV, almost four centuries later in the year 167 B.C. But as Commentator John MacArthur notes, the desecration of the temple by Antiochus was only a foreshadowing of the Antichrist's future perversion. Now, who is the Antichrist that we hear alluded to in verse 14? All, all bad jokes and misguided speculations aside, uh, the Antichrist is, is not the Pope, it's not Hitler, uh, it's not Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Um, no, the Antichrist is a very specific, unique, historical figure who is still yet to come in the end days, just after the rapture of the saints, just before Christ's return. 
who will usher in the most severe years of the tribulation by his own abomination of desolation here, as, as predicted elsewhere in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 12, verse 11, as well as in the New Testament, 1 John 2, 18, but especially 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 10. So I want to read that passage together with you. The day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing." because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so MacArthur explains, whereas Antiochus erected an idol of Zeus in the temple and, and sacrificed pig meat on a pagan altar and then make, made the Jewish priest eat it, this final Antichrist will exalt himself as God and demand the worship of all people on earth. His blasphemous religion will be promoted by the ultimate false prophet, who will perform great miracles through Satan's power in order to deceive the world. That's all predicted in Revelation chapter 13. And right here in the middle of prophesying this coming Antichrist, Jesus subtly drops in this parenthetical exhortation, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. Why? But for one thing, as, as we mentioned last week, I think Jesus knows that we have a tendency to be lazy, don't we? It's easier to, to turn on the TV than to read a book at the end of a long day. It's easier to, to order takeout than to cook a healthier, more cost-effective meal uh, on your own. Most of us are lazy, similarly, about our Bible study. If we study it all, there are plenty of easier passages of Scripture to try and wrap our heads around than Mark 13. It's not for the lazy. And so I think Jesus' exhortation here is in part intended to motivate and encourage us to spend the time required to study and grasp these complex but weighty truths concerning the end times. These are important matters, worthy of our time and attention. And as we said last week, God didn't write his word to confuse us. He wants us to understand I think let the reader understand also here offers us a clue uh, about who Mark 13, Jesus' words here, were primarily intended for. I think they weren't primarily intended for the 12 disciples, but rather for much later believers who would need to discern the signs of the ends of of the end times. The disciples weren't reading this. They were hearing it. But Jesus didn't say, let him who has ears hear. He's speaking not to his listeners here, but past them to later readers. The book of Revelation wasn't even written until the turn of the second century AD by the apostle John. And so this is apocalyptic, end time stuff that Jesus is talking about here. And what does he instruct those future readers to do? In verses 14 through 16, when the Antichrist props himself up as God in those days. Verse 14, Jesus says, flee to the mountains, get out of town, 
Because according to the prophet Zechariah, only one third of those left in Judea at that time will survive the Antichrist persecution. That's uh, Zechariah 13, 8 and 9. So here in verse 15 and 16, Jesus says, it's going to be so bad and happen so quickly that believers in the last day won't even have time to run in and grab a coat. That's part of the reason, verse 18, that they're supposed to pray that it doesn't happen in winter. He says, verse 17, good luck if you're pregnant or nursing at that time when the Antichrist begins his reign of terror. Because verse 19, in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, nor ever will be. This tribulation has, had been prophesied all the way back in Daniel 12.1. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since. There was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. It's the Lamb's book of life. MacArthur explains in Revelation chapters 6 through 16, the apostle John denotes the unparalleled horrors that will characterize the very end as God's wrath is poured out on the whole earth. The judgments that will mark the latter half of the tribulation period include the following. A great earthquake will devastate the earth, Revelation 6. Hail and fire will consume a third of the earth's vegetation, chapter 8. A third of the ocean will be turned to blood. A third of fresh water will be poisoned. A third of the sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. Countless demons will be released from bondage to terrorize mankind. A third of the earth's population will be killed. Another great earthquake will kill 7,000 people. Incurable sores will cause people great pain. The entire sea will turn to blood and all sea creatures will die. The rivers will turn to blood. The earth will experience extreme heat. Darkness will engulf the world. The Euphrates River will dry up. And a final global earthquake will cause massive changes to the earth's appearance. How many of y'all want to be a a pre-tribulationist? You're praying that the rapture happens before this this takes place. The siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD was bad, but not that bad. It was not worse than Noah's flood. Not end of the world bad. In fact, Jesus says in verse 20, it's going to be so bad that if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. If God hadn't predetermined to allow this tribulation to last for only three and a half years after the abomination of desolation, before sending Christ to return and rescue his elect, no one would be spared. Worst of all, even worse than the physical horrors are the spiritual ones. The continued presence, verses 21 and 22, of these false Christs and false prophets attempting to lead astray God's elect, if possible. Now we know, of course, it's not possible. They will be unable to lead God's elect astray. We know biblically that God keeps those he calls, that one cannot lose salvation any more than you can be unborn. If you've truly been born again, then your name has been written, past tense, in the Lamb's book of life, and God promises you, Revelation 3, 5, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. God doesn't write in pencil, because God doesn't make mistakes. He writes in pen. And yet, just like in our own day, where we see so many notable Christians falling away from the faith left and right, In those end times, in the furnace of persecution, these apostate teachers will lead many fake Christians astray. 
The Apostle John saw it in his own day. Those who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. If someone truly walks away from the faith, they prove they never truly had it in the first place. And many will do so in the last days, just as we're experiencing already all around us in this country. Once professing Christians leaving the faith as church attendance uh, continues its steady decline. I mentioned in a, a, a past sermon that in a recent survey right here in our own beloved St. Louis, those who self-identify religious as none or no religion now for the first time ever outnumber self-identifying Christians. And that's self-identifying Christians. That's people who just want to think themselves a Christian and, and check a box, right? If you ask if they've ever attended church in the past year, opened their Bible, said a prayer, that, num- that number plummets. But here's the thing. We can bemoan this fact. As believers, we can romanticize about the good old days when no one ran kids' sports leagues on Sundays because it was just expected that everybody was in church. But let's get real, friends. And all that's really happening today is a separating of the wheat from the chaff. It's probably not the case that there are any fewer actual Christians today than there were 50 years ago in this country. There are just fewer fakers today. As atheism, agnosticism, and just plain apatheism, I'm too bored or distracted to care about God. That's the dominant religion of our day. They've all become more socially acceptable. And so we see many pretenders going out from us, thereby proving they were never truly of us. But on the flip side, I'm not so naive as to think that just because you all are here among us today that you are actually of us. I'm not so naive as to think that everyone here in in our midst, in our gathered assembly on Sundays, is truly one of the redeemed. Listen, we're, we're thrilled that you're here at West Hills. Uh, maybe you got burned at a previous church. I know some of y'all have shared those, those stories with me. Uh, maybe you're, you're just coming back to church for the first time in decades. Maybe your life. We're thrilled, but please know this. This might be the most important thing you hear me say today. Your being here does not punch your ticket. The West Hills attendance roster is not the Lamb's Book of Life. Your baptism as an infant at that church that you got burned by did not punch your ticket. The only thing that punches your ticket, Ephesians 2, Romans 3, is genuine repentance and sincere faith in Jesus Christ. You must acknowledge that you have sinned against God and that you stand in desperate need of his forgiveness. And you must turn and trust that he has provided it for you, grace and mercy for you freely through the atoning death of his son Jesus on the cross in your place. If you do that and you've entrusted your life, your eternal fate to Jesus, then and only then does God promise he will never blot your name out of his book. And if you have not, by contrast, if you have not yet made that decision and surrendered your life to him in faith, then 
please forget everything else I'm going to say this morning and take care of that first. All this stuff about the end times, you need to focus on today, the present. Get right with God today because you might not have tomorrow. None of us is promised tomorrow around this place. And even if you do, your tomorrow will be infinitely better with Jesus than it would be without him. Give your life to him today. Today is the day of salvation. For those of us who are in Christ, verses 24 through 27, here of Mark chapter 13, describe the most glorious event we could ever dream of and pray for and hope to see with our own two eyes. Titus 2.13 calls this day our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And Jesus clearly describes his visible return as an earth-shattering, cosmos-altering, history-defining event. In those days, he says, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. This is the glorious day that the prophets of old had longed to see. Isaiah 13, 9 and 10, 24, chapter 34, Joel 2, Daniel 7, Ezekiel 38, Haggai 2, Zephaniah 1, Zechariah 14. Way too many Old Testament references specifically lining up with what Jesus says here of the sun being dark and the stars falling, cosmic events, cataclysmic stuff. We don't have time to look at all of them because this was the day that everyone has been waiting for for centuries before Jesus even came the first time, the day when Jesus Christ will return. And friends, he will. Jesus is coming back for his bride, for the church. That's the central truth of Mark 13 that we can all agree on. I don't care what your eschatology is. Jesus Christ is going to return for his bride the church. And here's what we know about that day. Verse 32, no one will know the day or hour, not even Jesus, who in his incarnated humanity voluntarily abdicated his divine omniscience. Only the Father knows the appointed time. That's just a fancy theological way of saying you don't know when he's coming back. Even Jesus didn't know when he was on earth when he was coming back. His return will be bodily and visible He'll be accompanied by the resurrection of those who have died in Christ into glorified, imperishable bodies. He will deliver his people from suffering and rescue us from wrath. He will reward those who have have persevered. And finally, this will be but the beginning of a permanent dwelling of Christ with his people for the rest of all eternity. That's good news. That's good news. Here's how John envisions that day in Revelation chapter 19. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, 
We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the description and the story only gets better from there in the Bible's last three chapters. After his triumphant return, his regathering of the elect, and his judgment of the wicked, Jesus will vindicate the righteous, Revelation 20. Resurrect the dead, Revelation 24 through 6. He will reign as king for a thousand years. Then he will cast Satan into the lake of fire. And finally, he will recreate, remake a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21 and 22, where we will reign with him and worship him for the rest of eternity. That's good news. Now, at this point in the Olivet Discourse, at the end of verse 27, I imagine Jesus pausing, as any good teacher does, to check with his disciples for their understanding. And I imagine them looking back at him with their typically blank, dumbfounded expressions on their faces that make it abundantly clear, as usual, even more so than usual, that they have absolutely no idea what Jesus has been talking about for the last five minutes. How could they? They didn't even understand back in chapters 10, 11, and 12 when Jesus plainly predicted his death and resurrection later that week, much less this enigmatic prophecy of his second coming millennia later. But remember, this discourse wasn't primarily for them. It's for later readers who will need to be on the lookout for the signs of the end times. So what does Jesus do? Anytime that he wants to obscure a spiritual truth from those it is not intended for in order to simultaneously illuminate it for those he desires to teach. He tells a parable. He tells a parable, verses 28 and 29, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. And then in verse 30, Jesus utters what could otherwise be potentially the most problematic portion of this entire prophecy. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, the preterist who denies that Mark 13 has as much or anything to do with the end times will argue that verse 30 here uh, prevents us from interpreting this as an eschatological prophecy. To do so would amount to calling Jesus a liar. Obviously, the generation Jesus was talking to did pass away before his end-time return. But there's a different way, of course, to read verse 30. MacArthur explains, obviously, such cosmic events have not yet taken place. When they do, Jesus warned that those alive at that time should recognize that he is about to return. As he explained, the generation that experiences those end-time events will be the same generation that is alive at his second coming, meaning that all of the final cataclysms on earth will occur within the span of a single generation. So Jesus offers here his future readers the assurance that their tribulation won't last forever, three and a half years after the abomination of desolation. 
And then just as assuredly, Jesus announces in verse 31 that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's ironic that Jesus will say in the very next verse, I don't even know when all of this is going to happen. And yet, in the same breath, in verse 31, he declares unequivocally, but it will happen. Even I don't know when, but it will happen. More certain than death or taxes is Christ's return. MacArthur notes that Jesus highlights here two fundamental theological realities, namely that this world is temporary, and secondly, that his word is infallible. The Bible is clear about both. First, the world is fleeting. 2 Peter 3, 10-13, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Likewise, Revelation 20, 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And Revelation 21, 1, our favorite, of course, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. But just as sure as the world's passing is the word's permanence. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Matthew 5, 18, truly I say to you, Jesus says, until heaven and earth have passed away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And therefore, because God's word cannot be broken, because Jesus predicting it means it's as good as done in God's eyes. How then ought you and I to live? How do we apply Mark 13 today? Where does the rubber hit the road with all of this? How are we supposed to live differently in light of Mark chapter 13? Well, Jesus actually gives us our application point right there in verses 33 through 37 at the end. Notice all the imperative verbs, the commands that he uses here. He says, be on guard, verse 33. Keep awake, stay awake, stay awake again in verse 35. And just in case you missed the, the two or three first ones, verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, what? Stay awake. So stay awake, that's your application point from the sermon today. Stay awake. Again, especially after Thanksgiving meal, some of us need to just wake up, period. What does it mean to stay spiritually awake? To stay awake. I want to end by commending to you five ways that you and I can stay awake spiritually. Number one, study. Study this stuff. Know the signs of the times. Pay attention. Seek to understand. Devote yourself to Bible study. That means getting in the Word regularly. Not just the milk, but the meat. Nothing against your you know, prepackaged devotional with one verse at the top and then two pages of someone's commentary on it. That's fine. Get in the Word yourself. 
Don't rely on other people's milk. Get in the meat of God's word, the deep end. Number two, don't speculate. Study, but don't speculate. Ironically, if you or I could know the day and the hour of the Lord's return, we wouldn't have to stay awake, would we? We'd just set the alarm for five minutes before he came back and make sure we woke up then. We got right with God then. But you don't know. You can't know. Just like none of us can know the day of our own personal reckoning. The day when you will go to meet the Lord if he doesn't come back first. You don't know. So get right with God today. Because you don't know, because you can't know, don't get so caught up in speculation in, in this end times theology and conspiracies or whatever, so heavenly minded that you become no earthly good, as the expression goes. Number three, pray for Christ's return. I don't ask this to condemn anyone because I'm chief of sinners, but when was the last time you actively prayed that Jesus would come and make all things new? Is that a regular prayer for you? It's not for me. If nothing else, I I hope that this two-part sermon series for me will start that as a, a regular discipline. Regularly praying that God would send Jesus to come again, make all, the, all things new. If his return is really our blessed hope, if it's really the climax, the telos, the intended goal and end, the fulfillment of all of human history, if it means that he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes, there will no longer be any sickness or death or suffering, if it means that we'll get to dwell with him forever, finally, in our brand new resurrection bodies. I see some of y'all hobbling around here on Sundays with your canes and your walkers. I must have banged my elbow playing basketball last week. I'm still sore. I wouldn't have even felt it, you know, 10 years ago. But some of y'all are twice my age and I'm ready for a new body. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Give me that new resurrection body. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We ought to be asking, begging the Lord to return and make all the things new. Number four, live a life of obedience. Live a life of obedience. Here is the Apostle Peter's application point from the passage we read from him just earlier in 2 Peter 3. He says, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And then he answers the question, his rhetorical question. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? We await that glorious day, living lives of holiness and godliness. Why? Well, because as John exhorts us in 1 John 2.28, he says, abide in him, in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Some of y'all might have heard that saying, some of us back when we were teenage boys in particular, don't do anything that you wouldn't do if your grandmother was in the room watching over your shoulder. And come to think of it, 
That might be why middle school boys have such a problem with hygiene and they never take showers. So maybe we should stop using that phrase and, and maybe the better advice is don't do anything that you wouldn't want to be caught in the middle of when Jesus returns. Because he is one day. What if it was tomorrow? Is the thing that I'm doing right now Preaching is, um, but what will I be doing tomorrow? Will the thing that I'll be doing this time tomorrow be something that I would be confident, not shrinking back from, not ashamed of at his coming? If all the works done on earth will truly be exposed, then we ought to live lives of holiness such that we will not shrink back in shame, rather run confidently into his arms. And finally, number five, Tell everyone you know about him. This will not be a good day for everyone. The day of the Lord. Every knee will bend and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But most knees and most tongues will do it involuntarily. And it will not be a good day. Remember, he comes to tread the wine press of God's wrath There's a lot in the book of Revelation about blood and wrath and war. Jesus hates sin, and he will judge sin. Tell everyone you know about him. Did you catch what Peter slipped in to chapter 3 of 2 Peter Peter 3? He said, you and I can actually hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. Speed up his coming. Now, this is, gets into a whole other conversation we don't have time for, kind of like the relationship between predestination and free will. But suffice it to say, this is, this is a matter of perspective, okay? Yes, it is true, Acts 1-7, that God the Father in his providence has fixed the day of Christ's return. Yes, Acts 17.31, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's fixed from God's perspective. So in what sense can you and I hasten, speed up Jesus' return? From God's perspective, of course, we can't. The day and the hour is fixed. It's written in ink. But since Romans 11.34, no one can know the mind of the Lord all we, you and I are left to go off of is what he's made plain to us right here in his word. And what he's made plain to us in his word is number one, that God is as excited as anyone for Christ's return. God is also looking forward to the day when he can and will send back Jesus to return for his bride. But number two, there are certain prophecies that God has made clear must take place before that day comes. Number three, Every other prophecy Jesus makes in Mark 13 and elsewhere in Scripture, for that matter, arguably has been fulfilled. We can argue about the end times, the signs of the times, and if all the prophecies, arguably every prophecy has been fulfilled but one. And that's what we ended with last week, Mark 13.10. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Why? Because Ezekiel 19, 23, 
I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, but rather that they should turn from their ways and live. Because 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Because 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But his patience won't last forever, friends. Not for you, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, and not for those out there, your lost loved ones that you sat around the Thanksgiving table with who were spiritually dead. And they await the coming day of the Lord or when they will go and face the Lord in heaven at the, at the gates as his throne. Not with anticipation and excitement, joyful, hopeful, but with fear and trembling. They should. God isn't arbitrarily dragging his feet, just waiting for the perfect moment to come and surprise everyone like a thief in the night. He's waiting for the full number of his elect to reach repentance and faith so that he can include as many people as possible in his covenant promise and in his eternal kingdom. And because it's not for you and I to know who has been chosen, because only God can accomplish the gospel growth that has to take place in a person's heart and bring a person to repentance and faith, it's not for us to speculate about who's in and who's out, but rather simply, 2 Timothy 4.2, to preach the word in season and out of season at all times, to preach the word, our job is simply to sow. Remember that? Parable of the sower, Mark 4. Just sow liberally. Hard ground, sow. Rocky ground, sow. Thorny ground, sow. Just keep sowing. Because Romans ten thirteen, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a beautiful promise. But Romans ten fourteen. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So go preach. This is what it means to stay awake. Verse 34, Jesus says, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. Jesus has left us with a job to do, friends, until he returns. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So, yes, the day is fixed in the mind of the Lord, but from our earthly perspective, we await for that day and we hasten it by telling everyone we can the good news about Jesus because the sooner they know, the sooner Jesus might just return and make all things new. Our blessed hope, amen. Let's pray.